Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, joined by Maggie Moore, the hammer of the Northwest, and Ellie Jacobs, who taught us to number our days that we might gain the heart of wisdom, and we never had the courtesy to thank it. Ahoy, mateys. Ah, ahoy. And, you know, it's nice to have the whole band ship back together again. Hell yeah. <laughs> the famous band ship. <laughs> the famous band ship. You know what I mean. Silence. All right, so naturally, we beseech you to please rate us, comment, subscribe where we get your podcast. It helps us get new subscribers, and obviously, you should want to help us do everything at all times. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at, at @takingship, and that ship with a P as in Puma. Uh, you can follow Frank at, at @frankspring, me at MaggieM012, and you can continue to dunk on Ellie on Twitter because he's not on the hellscape of a site anymore. Very cleverly, he abandoned that particular ship, and, <laughs> and we're all just incredibly jealous uh, and envious of his wisdom. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I am. I do split time with you all on the taking ship one, but I am spending considerably less time on Twitter, and, and I am far better off for it. And I can't recommend people getting off Twitter enough. Just you look, you look better, my man. Yeah, yeah I've lost, confirm. I've lost ten pounds. I'm two and a half inches taller, and my hair is no longer as gray. Yeah, there you have it, folks. It's a miracle cure. Yeah. So we, uh, we're going to touch very briefly on <clears throat> the upcoming appointment viewing, and I say that so advisedly that I don't mean it. Uh, the upcoming appointment viewing, the uh, Democratic debates uh, for the uh, presidential uh, candidates are coming up uh, this week. Is that correct? They're coming up on two nights. Yeah, Tuesday and Wednesday. Tuesday and Wednesday. Thank you very much. Uh, we will be talking about them uh, largely after they happen, uh, that we are having two debates uh, with a field this big, this far out from uh, anyone actually casting a vote in a primary, let alone in the general, uh, is completely fucking absurd. And yet here we are. Uh, so, and, and that you're also going to be hearing that from us a lot during this primary, during this primary process. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the debate now, just in advance of it. Uh, Mags, do you have thoughts on what we can expect from this two-night extravaganza of candidates ranging from the credible to the frankly fucking baffling? Honestly, I feel like the only main takeaway for me at this point is that we can't technically call it a debate, just like how um, anything that's over two hours can't be called a meeting. I don't really know what the new name for that is, but it's not a meeting. Um, This is more, it's a clusterfuck. This is like, this is a clown car pileup. And I think it's mostly just going to be a little bit about introducing people uh, to the, to the stage. There's a lot of, you know, voters out there who don't know who all the candidates are. Um, but I am very excited to see who's going to absolutely stick their foot in their mouth. So that's the part that I'm looking forward to. That's fair. If you're an entropy fan, these two debates, I think have a lot of potential. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Ellie, what do you think? Well, I think the clown car analogy is right on target. And the fact that Bernie Sanders is like the non-clown of the group makes this just so poignant for Dumbest Timeline America that this is happening not just one night, but they're going to do it again the second night is, is, is I, one would hope they would learn and just be like, you know what? 
that was enough. My deepest hope is they cancel the second night of debates, not for any political reasons, but just for like, just like humanity's sake. They're just like that was we can't we can't in good conscience. We're too like, tired. Turn it off. There should like there should legit be like a it should there should be a gong, and the first time somebody just says something, either puts their foot in their mouth or says something so outlandishly stupid or like yes. just so scripted. Thank you. Like you're done now. Like they I should feel just, like if that's how we got our nominee, like I would watch. Yeah, like they should keep them on the stage, but like turn their spotlight off. So they're nice. just like standing in the dark. That's what I want to see. <laughs> like, what, like a cone of silence. Yeah, that's what I want to see. <laughs> or we could go full Austin Powers and they get like flipped back in their chair, you know, and just like yeah. sit down to the pits below and they are ne'er heard from again. I do like the simple notion of just having two dudes just come on stage and just haul them roughly off. No. Like Pick out. people up by their arms. Yeah. I mean, this is going to be, this is just going to be laughably stupid for this number of people to be fighting over what will amount to probably no more than seven to eight minutes of actual potential speaking time. And that's if it's evenly divided, which we know it won't be. Um, So this, this will be incredibly stupid. And the fact that they didn't figure out a way to better distribute the people who are actually potential nominees uh, among the two events and Elizabeth Warren is going herself the second night is also just dumb yeah ridiculous. Um, but I, I was looking at some quick numbers and the way the polling works now this is off the real clear politics um average so biden's at a 31.9 so let's call it 32 percent because let's not deal with decimals right now um sanders and warren sanders and warren together are at 27 mayor pete and kamala harris are at 14 beto booker yang klobuchar and castro are at eight total and then everybody else adds up to a whopping four and a half percent so uh, oh, yeah. the reason I bring this up is because you, you need a vicious combo of a couple of those latter three buckets to take to put Joe Biden, well, potentially out of his misery, but put Joe Biden out of the race. But where I'm really struggling to see what's going to happen uh, is because if Joe Biden is, quote unquote, only at 32 percent at this stage in the game where most of these other people are unknown, and everybody knows who Joe Biden is. He really only has downside at this point, um, mm. which is which should Good be point. which should be very scary for him and his campaign team uh, that he can really only go down unless something very strange and miraculous happens to push him up. So that's one thing with Joe Biden. The second thing is Bernie Sanders has been on a deep slide since, well, essentially since he endorsed. Hillary Clinton because he lost all of his all of his people there and he's just going to continue tumbling down so if you think that Sanders and Warren are for a lot of Sanders voters are potentially exchangeable and Mayor Pete and Kamala Harris are sort of the new blood new interesting people so they're sort of on the same tier you have to look for what's going to happen with those five people and my guess is Sanders is not going to be in this thing in the, for the long haul. I think Warren is going to bounce him out very, very soon, uh, very soon. I, I think he'll make it to Iowa, but I don't know that he's going to make it much past that. Um, so my big question, especially in the first debate where Sanders and, and Kamala and Pete and Biden, everybody else are going to be playing, um, is who goes on the attack first? Uh, you know, Biden strategically has been very careful to not attack anybody because he knows that he's got the biggest record to be attacked on. So if he continues to play nice, he can kind of stay above the fray and say, uh, I'm going to keep, you know, I'm the leader of this pack. I'm going to keep things um, calm and, and, and friendly. Uh, my guess is Sanders will be the first to go on the attack um, and it will be ugly and it will backfire. And his, you know, 
lunar, like the Sandardistas will love it. And then the other 13% of people who support him will disappear very quickly. So that's my prediction of what's going to happen. But overall, this is just going to be um, must, must missable television. Like, just don't watch this. If you're really interested, read the transcript the next day. Oh, this God, reading a debate transcript of this <laughs> would be like, an absolute nightmare. Please print, don't make no, me do it, that. Print it off. We insist that you print oh. it off and read the thing from the first word to the last. Oh, my yep. God. Yep. So this much crosstalk. Exactly, yep. Just horrifying. And I mean, just if you inaudible. Think if you think, yeah, that's exactly right. Just, just gibberish. Of course, it's not going to be that much better if you watch it. No, that, all of that sounds about right to me. On your point, I think that what you've set out, Ellie, is a really good structure for, for how this primary is likely to go. And on your point that Sanders might make it to Iowa, not beyond that, it's a good point. You make a really good point there in part because Warren organizationally, and this, this bears repeating, Warren organizationally has put all of her chips on Iowa. Like she mm-hmm. is banking on it. I don't know necessarily about winning it, but like having a really strong finish there that's going to validate her legitimacy as if she requ- as if she further needed to do it. But from a, from a, a kind of uh, really a structural, a structural perspective, it's really going to validate her legitimacy as a, as a contender for this thing. She's done it. And, and I think that, that her advantage in Iowa is going to be based on that. Yeah, in, yeah, you're totally right. The, the other point to make is, uh, you know, in that next group of Beto, Booker, Yang, for unbeknownst reasons. Uh, Yang, Klo- why? Klobuchar. Yang, why? Klobuchar and <laughs> Yang Mentum. Klobuchar and Castro, um, Booker is at 2.3%. Um, you know, in some people would say he had a good week because he went on the attack on Joe Biden this week. Um, he didn't really have a choice. Uh, he needs to make noise because, uh, people are starting to realize, I mean, Politico did a comic book that Jay's, uh, the Commodore and Frank both pointed out to me in political magazine this week. And as I started reading it, I think I, Frank, what did I comment? I commented like, I'm not seeing the disclaimer with the paid for by corporate. Cory Booker for president campaign. Yeah, this, this was a, a very, this was some good work uh, on, on the part of his communications shop for sure. Be, being a note that the Politico stock and trade is being played by people's communication. Yeah, but then at about the, at about the halfway point, it turned into a direction I was far more comfortable with. Um, so uh, I think that the reality is people are starting to see that there's not much to Cory Booker. Um, so he had to go on the attack because he's got to make hay doing something. Everything else he's tried has failed. Uh, given you know Biden, what Biden said this week, it, what he said he didn't need to say. And then when they released all the letters, there was nothing in the letters that was particularly egregious. This was a guy who was trying to get committee chairmanships from you know whoever. So I think Booker's going to be on the. He's going to be seething and and and. Uh, on the attack during the debates. Uh, so that's where I think what's going to happen with Biden and Booker. Do you guys have thoughts on what, what played out this week? I mean, me talking about Cory Booker isn't really fair. Well, I just, I think really quickly, I think the point that I want to make sure it gets across, especially for folks who maybe don't actually know what happened between what Biden said and then what Booker's response was, is that like, yes, he went on the attack and yes, he was making hay, but let's not forget, it was about something that was relatively racist that he could speak to as a black candidate. Um, so it's right. not just like him, you know, trying to make a move, but it's, oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a fucking problem. If Joe Biden said, well, he never called me boy. It doesn't ma- like, that's not something that affects someone who looks like Joe Biden. It's someone, something that affects something that looks like Cory Booker. So I think it is easier. Yes, definitely. Um, it's a play for attention, but like it needed to be said because Biden's going to do that throughout his entire campaign and dig his heels right on it. So Booker has to say something. 
Yeah, the whole the whole kerfuffle, uh, <clears throat> and we, we've sort of been dancing around the specifics of it, but and partly because we don't want to regurgitate the news here. But but this was about Biden working uh, with uh, senators who were known to be segregationist, publicly segregationist, uh, and who were themselves uh, extremely and openly, explicitly racist, uh, and and his being sort of not only not only working with them, but being cordial and chummy with them. And it's it's it is a kind of it came out of the Democratic Party trying to reckon with a past in which it has both been an engine for civil uh, for the progress of civil rights, and also worked very worked you know hand in glove with uh, with individuals and organizations that perpetuated power structures that were that are extremely racist, if not explicitly, then certainly functionally, right? Um, so that yeah, that I mean, was what this was, and 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 Biden's point was well, I worked with this person because he never called me boy, uh, and and you know, and there is a strain of liberals that that have this kind of notion that as long as no one mistreats me personally, um, then it's okay. I mean, we had a guest on this very show um, say that she would be comfortable with Amy Klobuchar as president of the United States because Amy Klobuchar has never thrown a stapler at her. Right. Uh, and, would, you know, there is like there, there, I think we underestimate at our peril the size of the audience that, un, that is, you know, and, and that audience typically comes from a place of pretty significant privilege that are like, well, I've never been mistreated uh, by this person or by these institutions, and therefore this isn't really a problem for me. Uh, and it, it is n- not at all to the credit of, the, of our party that these people are part of it. Yeah, I, I, you know, bringing up the way Biden responded to it, um, Frank, you made an interesting point when we were prepping for this of the way his campaign has kind of either intentionally or not intentionally brought on this idea of kind of never apologize um, and that that's sort of Trumpian. And I was thinking about it, you know, in, in the, over the last 10 minutes. And if there are things that the Biden campaign is doing specifically to pick off Trump voters, soft Trump voters, one of the few attributes about Donald Trump that could potentially be picked up without, you know, turning you into an absolute monster is the no apology trait. Not that it's a good trait, but compared to the other ones, uh, it seems to me that that's one that some of those soft Trump voters could be attracted to. And if, if that's part of the strategy and who, we're not here to say that it necessarily is, but from the outside, it kind of seems like it. It's an interesting question about if this is exactly right. It is, and, and, and Biden's point was, it was explicit. He was not apologizing. And he said the Booker should apologize. And this isn't the only time he has done this, right? Like he has right. been, you know, criticized at various points on his record. He has been, he's gone on the counterattack. And it's not clear to me if this is a deliberate choice to be more like Trump, who did make a lot of hay off of not apologizing, or if this is just kind of where Joe is right now. Like he's just not in the mood to apologize for anything uh, and screw it. And I, and I think that it's, I think this is probably a confluence of both things. And, and again, there is, you know, just as there is a constituency within the Democratic Party for, I haven't been personally victimized by this person or this organization or this institution, and therefore I don't, I don't have a problem with it. There is also a constituency on, in, on, you know, throughout the political spectrum, for people whose idea is I want, my, you know, I, I want a candidate who has never had an evolution of their political thoughts, right? Like they have believed mm-hmm. the same thing from start to finish. Um, if they are questioned on it, they push back and, they, you know, they push back. And the idea of ever having been wrong is just anathema to them. And I think some of that is, 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 a, is a testament to how troubled our political times are right now. Like that is, that is a, I mean, a, you know, a pretty primitive way of looking at humanity. And, but some of it also is, I think, a, a, at least partially an understandable response to 20 years of triangulation, especially from the left, especially from the left and from liberals, right? Like it used to be that you had no idea, and this was the thing about liberals, right? As George H. W. Bush said, a liberal is a person who won't take us outside in a fight. 
And so like we are, there, there may be an overcorrection on the left as well as the right looking for people that are just, no, nah, man, this is me. This is what I think. And if you don't agree with me, screw it. It's the way, and people have written about this. I think Roth has written about this, the great David Roth, um, that it's, I mean, this is, it, that's the way a, like a complete dick operates, right? Like only a dick goes through the world being like, you have to take me exactly as I am. Uh, I can do no, you know, I can't do anything wrong. And if you call me out, you're the idiot. Like that's like, that's, that's, that's an infantile way of viewing the world. But these are kind of infantile times in politics right now. Maybe there's a constituency for this. Kind of. Kind of. No, I think <laughs> what I think is really interesting about this point is that um, this is the reality show personality tactic. Um, Hell yeah, I'm not here to make friends. A hundred percent. And I am, I am not ashamed at all to admit that I have been going on a little journey in Bravo's TV history and I've been watching a lot of the Real Housewives reunions from seasons past. I think it's fun. Um, but this idea of I'm not apologizing, I'm owning up to my shit and I own it. And like, if you don't like it, go fuck yourself is very much what a formulaic reality TV show demands of the personalities. Um, so not only is like the real housewives doing stuff like this, but this is the school in which Donald Trump was actually raised. Um, and it's what gets you rating, what gets you attention. So the idea of borrowing from this reality show playbook, um, to get those Trump voters, those like white working class folks that have feel so ignored, um, is a, is a show of strength. It's also a very entertaining show of strength. It's, it's what we wish we could do in real life with our friends, with people we disagree with saying like, well, you don't agree with me, then go fuck yourself. But we don't talk to people like that. Watching someone do that on TV and as a candidate, um, is very compelling. And I think it's sort of speaking to a little bit of a lizard brain part, um, on some folks, um, that this, that is an unshakable, uh, display of dominance and power. When, if you have to display that much dominance, you are probably actually that insecure. So I think it's a, I think it's an interesting parallel to a reality show president. That's a really, really good point. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it sort of raises, you know, and, and candidates are going to do, they are going to show, attempt to show their authenticity. And right, that is not authenticity, right? Like I think right. like that is, that is an adopted position, a performance of, of a type of a person, right? They're very it's few a, people it's, who are it's authentically peacock, that. It's a peacock showing its feathers. Yeah. There are very few people that are authentic, but at least a peacock is authentic, authentically has that coloring, right? Like right. this is people pretending to be that person. The only person I can think of who's actually that publicly insecure to pull that off is Donald Trump, who does right. it extremely authentically because that's all he knows how to do. Exactly. Um, but candidates are going to look for every opportunity to show authenticity. Uh, and and to sort of show themselves as who they are. That's the that's the whole thing. And a few of them were given an opportunity, if we may turn to this. Oh yes. Uh, quite recently, by the organ of record. Oh yes, by the great lady herself. Um, so I don't know if folks saw, uh, but the New York Times featured um, a series of video interviews with almost all of the candidates. I don't believe Joe Biden was participating. I think there were a, a few other of the little grando white guys that I don't know who they are were also not participating. No, it's pretty much just Joe Biden. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I can't tell them all apart. So uh, the vast, vast majority of the candidates uh, sat down with the New York Times to answer the same 18 questions. Uh, and the New York Times put out the answers to these questions as sort of like shorter cut videos. Um, and I was just minding my own business on Twitter last week. And I kept seeing these very bizarre screenshots of, again, white guys who I don't know and don't care to know um, with their stupid answers to 
seemingly basic questions. Now, some of the questions are a bit more serious around things like, do you think billionaires should exist? Should we be breaking up big companies like Facebook and Google? Uh, And then other questions sort of speak to that authenticity factor that Frank was touching on, um, which I would like us to discuss here now. So, um, Frank, I'll start with you. Many of us are polling as well as some of these candidates. Exactly. Especially with folks who live in my apartment. I am polling very well. Um, (laughs) I'm pretty sure I'm polling better than a good 50% of the people running. Exactly. Uh, We're very likable people. Um, So, Frank, which was your favorite slash least favorite question uh, that the candidates were asked? And then how would you answer that question yourself? Well, I was most interested, but my answer to this isn't going to be particularly compelling, but I was most interested by the question of how much sleep do you get? First, I really like that. I mean, this is not actually I'm going to take a radical position and say this is a much more important question than it's given credit for. Interesting. Um, because, you know, you've got all these policy questions. Should billionaires exist? Should people have handguns? Like these are all these are substantive media questions uh, that go to the heart of, of, you know, any Democratic candidate's policy platform. But how much sleep you get is a really relevant question because as in, you know, in a position of leadership, you have to perform publicly at a high level all the time. And that means both you have to do well in the public eye and you have to, you have to exercise and demonstrate good judgment often and very often on very short notice. That is entirely dependent upon the amount of sleep you get. So, this, so I was interested to see the answer to these people's questions. So they asked, how much sleep do you get? Uh, the the person who handed in the worst answer, like a number of people kind of punted on this question, like Kamala Harris answered not enough. Fine, that, but that's not like that, 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 that's not an honest answer. Um, or maybe that is an honest answer, but it doesn't really tell us anything except, except that you're just not performing at the highest level that you could be. So congratulations for that, Kamala Harris. Uh, Eric Swalwell's answer, four hours, and, uh, four hours of sleep a night. Uh, yeah, Seth Moulton, who should honestly just shut his campaign down and restart it again as Meth Sultan. Uh, no one will ever be able to tell the difference. Uh, Although his, his campaign answer, did have those awesome T-shirts. Yeah, so he he's restarting his. So his answer was like, I aim for seven, but I usually get four or five. Like you get a lot of people in the four, five, six range. Um, though, there are people in the world who only require four hours of sleep. Right? There are some like it is possible that there's some people that like that's just a night, and that's that's fine. But most people who think they only need four or five hours of sleep a night are fooling themselves. The overwhelming majority of human beings require seven to nine hours of sleep a night in order to be able to function at a high level, right? Like this, and that's, it is, and so, and if you're not getting it, you are messing up your body down to the, down to the cellular level. I can't stress this enough, and I'm not, this is not going to turn into a physiology lecture, but, I, but, but sleep is not a trivial thing. Sleep is not something you can afford to give away. Sleep is really important for your functionality. If LeBron James were asked how much sleep you're getting at night, how much sleep are you getting at night? And he was like, oh, yeah, I only get four hours of sleep a night. Everyone would be like, you goddamn idiot. Why aren't you sleeping more? You're paid a lot of money to perform at a really high level. What the hell's wrong with you? Uh, but at this, but but all but what we have is a cavalcade of candidate of Democratic candidates being like, yeah, I, I am doing what you know what I'm doing is I'm just I am I'm not I am making a decision or I'm structuring my life in such a way that I'm just not going to be very good, really ever. I'm not I'm just not going to have very good days. Most of the time, I'm functioning at well below my capacity uh, because I because I, I can't go to sleep because my life can't be ordered that way. And frankly, I just I don't accept that that is something. It it feeds in a little bit too. Some of this is a performance. Like there's this culture of workism that we were talking about before this thing kicked off. Uh, Maggie, I think you meant, you mentioned that. Uh, and there is this kind of cultural veneration for working too hard. And I think it, I think it's a sickness, and it's something that costs us a lot. So I really, 
I, I came down, I come down pretty hard. Eric Swalwell for your answer four hours a night. You did really, really badly. Elizabeth Warren and, uh, and Kristen Jill and Kristen Gillibrand. Thank you for answering well. And honestly, Warren said eight hours. Gillibrand said eight to nine. You know, that's the kind of thing I'd like to see from, from a presidential candidate and whenever possible, ideally from a president of the United States. So well done. My personal answer, we have a newborn, so I am doing my best to sleep more than that. But, you know, I, I hope I get a little bit of a dispensation. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, getting a newborn, you're lucky to, to sleep at all. So, you know, good for you. Um, I think that other folks should tell us what their favorite uh, questions were. Uh, mine personally was the comfort food one. I really respected Kirsten Gillibrand saying a glass of whiskey because like, amen, sister. That's a yeah. good answer. I, I mean, my take on this was they pussyfooted around the policy ones unless they actually had one, which most of them don't. Um, the gimmies where you can actually show some personality, a good half of them just, again, wimped out on it and, you know, said, oh, I eat apples as snacks or some bullshit like that, where, you know, Gillibrand was honest. Um, and that bothered me. Like, this was an actual... Yeah, one of them said vegetables. Fuck yeah. off. What the yeah. fuck? Yeah. Like, you have the opportunity here to be like a human being, show that you're a human being. Um, you know, I'll say two things about sleep, and then we should probably wrap this up because I didn't get enough last night, but... One thing is that, you know, we used to make fun of the fact that George, George W. Bush would go to sleep at like nine o'clock every night, but he would wake up at like five or six to, you know, get to work. I actually found that that was, there's something to be said for that, particularly after somebody like Bill Clinton, who in his memoir says that every mistake he's ever made in his life was after too little sleep. Uh, but somebody pointed out to me, or I don't, somebody didn't point out, but I saw somewhere um, that the way that people should really be thinking about their days is you have three eight hour blocks. Eight of that is sleep. Eight-ish of that is work. And what are you doing with the other eight hours of your life? And that's like, I'm still struggling with that. Like, I have eight hours of a day that I'm just screwing around with now. Um, so if I have a passing, a passing word before we, before we cut out today, um, it would be think about your days structured in those, in, in those three blocks. Eight hours for sleep, eight-ish hours for work. Obviously, a lot of us work longer hours than that, and that's fine. But then that still gives you five, six hours of time to fill otherwise. Yeah. Sorry, this is exactly right. I, I know I ranted a long time about this, but I will just say briefly here, if someone says, oh, I only sleep four or five hours a night, unless they're one of the like 5% of people who only need that or less, what they're saying is being, making good judgment isn't that important to me. I'd rather be yeah. doing other things than, than, than preserving my judgment. Also, guys, 100% accurate. For the five, like, it's like there are like four or five of the white dudes who answered the question, who is your hero for the New York Times? So the answer was my wife. I know you're trying my to, wife, my wife. I know exactly. <laughs> extreme. I missed the opportunity for Borat voice. Thank you, Mags. I appreciate that. I, I, I sympathize with that answer. I get it. Uh, but what you're doing when you say that it looks like you're trying to show that you can, that you can admire women, which is a really good thing in a guy. Uh, but it just, it, it just looks bad. It is kissing cousins with, uh, you know, as the, you know, as, you know, as the husband, as a husband to a wife, a son to a mother and a father to a daughter, I respect women. Do not do that shit. Yeah. Find an historical example of. Also, it says like I can't think of an historical woman that I admire, so I'm just going to get the one I married. Right. It's also don't don't, do it. It, don't it, say it, Jesus, don't say Gandhi, don't say Martin Luther King, don't say Abraham Lincoln. Get more creative. Yeah, get more, yeah. These are cell phones, and no one believes you. You look bad, and also you have inadvertently become one of the online wife guys. Do not become an online wife guy. We have enough. We don't need any more. Yeah, but going back to this idea of blocking your day out in those three in those three areas, uh, you now have eight hours of a day to rate and follow us and subscribe and leave us a review. 
uh, lengthy reviews that can be written over hours or days of periods of time. There's no reason to not write a draft first and submit it to us for comment. That's fine. You can do that. Yeah. Um, so please 2, do. words, 2,400 words. That's, I mean, that's what we're looking for. I'm here. pretty sure Apple lets you leave reviews of that length. And if, if they not, you can create a blog about how great we are. Yeah, I, that's strongly suggested. Uh, so in, in the meantime, please do rate and rate and subscribe to us. Uh, please follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in uh, psychosis, which most of these people running for president possess. Um, Not P as in primary? This feels like a real missed opportunity. Uh, I'm always missing it. All right. P as in primary also. You can follow Maggie at MaggieM012, Frank at Frank Spring, uh, me at taking ship and that's ship with a P as in primary. Uh, uh, now that we have Frank back, we can continue the war on the sea. And I feel like we need to Frank, where are we taking ship this week? So we're headed, uh, nearby. We're going straight off. Well, nearby to y'all we're taking ship for, uh, the, uh, the ocean straight off the coast of New Jersey and Massachusetts where scientists this week discovered, uh, below the, uh, below the ocean floor, what they believe is a huge, uh, reservoir of fresh water. Now we haven't really talked about fresh water in the war on the in the war on the sea yet. Uh, it, it is it is water, and therefore it could be of the enemy. On the other hand, it is fresh, and we need it to survive, and therefore it could be on our side. This is the first example I can think of of a large uh, reservoir of fresh water being so near to population centers under the ocean floor, and therefore we must fe- we must determine for ourselves, for our own strategic purposes, whose side is this fresh water on. So, friends, we take ship this week. For the, uh, for, you know, for the coastal waters off of New Jersey and Massachusetts to determine the allegiance of this fresh water armed with a special gun. God, I missed that. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>